Hello, and welcome to the Flip and Shift podcast. My name is Julie Walls. This podcast was based on the Flip and Shift's tagline, flipping your thinking to then shifting your behavior. The Flip and Shift podcast focuses on temperament to then how we evolve in our thinking to which influences our behaviors. We create belief systems throughout life, which affects the outcomes in our lives. Did you know that you can reprogram these belief systems? To produce the outcomes you so desire. No matter what you're dealing with, there will always be a solution for you. So, this podcast should give you some hope. Yay! With each episode, we'll be chatting with leading experts in the field that have overcome struggles of their own. They found their way to overcome areas in their lives that needed focus and are now actually helping others to find their way. We all have a story to share. Let's learn from our past to change our future, and most importantly, inspire and help others along the way. If you are wanting to feel empowered, inspired, and are ready to make those changes in your life, you are subscribed to the right podcast. And hey, thank you so much for your support. Now, grab your favorite drink or snack, turn up the volume, kick back, and enjoy this chat. Hey, everybody. It's Julie Walls with the Flip and Shift Podcast. I am here to inspire and share the stories of experts who have gone through a journey, found their way, and are now inspiring and helping others. Today, we have an amazing guest with us on the podcast. We are chatting with Casey Howard, Executive Director of the Nate Shoot Foundation. Casey was born and raised in the Flathead Valley in northwestern Montana. After attending university in Oregon, Casey taught English internationally in South America before returning to the Flathead. She has a formal education as a secondary English teacher, but found her true passion working in community mental health. After 10 years working in the children's mental health system, Casey transitioned to executive director at the Nate Shute Foundation in 2017. Casey is a certified QPR, question, persuade, refer instructor, and is a nationally certified school suicide prevention specialist through the American Association of Suicide Deology. In her free time, Casey enjoys skiing, rafting and traveling with her family, which is wonderful. We will be discussing suicide prevention and crisis mitigation and her work through the Nate Shoot Foundation in Northwestern Montana. Hi, Casey. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well, Julie. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I know this is a really, really sensitive topic, but one that's desperately needed to be talked about. Now, I know I introduced you that you are in the northwestern part of Montana. Can you further expound? Did you grow up here and give a little bit of just some backstory on you? Yeah, thanks. So I'm up here in Whitefish, which really is very far up northwest Montana. It's as close to Idaho and Canada as you can probably get. I grew up here. I was born and raised in Whitefish and made my way back home with my husband who found his way out here to be a ski bum. So I spent most of my life here in Whitefish. Spent some time, as you mentioned, out in Oregon and teaching internationally. But yeah, it's a good little spot up here, really close to Glacier National Park, tons of outdoor recreation and... uh, Good, good spot for us to raise our family. So you like to ski. I love to ski. Yeah, we do a lot of biking, rafting, camping, kind of typical Montana stuff at our house. Isn't it amazing where we live? It's unreal. It really, it really is. Yeah, yeah. And I think as a kid, in some ways, I took it for granted. <laughs> 
but you're back. And it seems like a lot of people that were raised here or raised in the area usually leave, you know, and realize, Hey, we live in a really amazing place. I'd like to come back and raise my children here, which kudos to you. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about Nate shoot and I want to talk about how the Nate shoot foundation came about. Can you explain? Yeah. So Nate shoot was a young man who died by suicide when he was 18 years old. He was a local kid here in whitefish and really his family, his parents had that, a, a call to action to do something, you know, they sort of took their trauma and their tragedy and wanted to pay that forward. And try to do something and build something to help other families not have to experience this this really traumatic form of loss. So it was pretty amazing. Nate died in August of 1999. And by September, his family had incorporated a 501c3, which is the Nate Shoot Foundation. So they really acted fast to kind of take their pain and put it to a passion project, which is super cool. You know, Nate was a, a very typical teenage kid, right? And I think so more than the story of his life and his tragic death, it's representative of all of those who are suffering, right? Who suffer with hopelessness and with tremendous pain and maybe with undiagnosed mental health issues and who sort of struggle in silence. So that was really the intention of this organization was to to help connect people to resources, to help educate our communities on what does it look like when somebody's struggling? Because a lot of the times when we look back on somebody who's died by suicide, we'll go, oh, maybe that was something or this was something. And Ultimately, you know, we do the best we can with what we have, but it is really important that we're aware of those things to look for. And and so I think that was Nate's family's intention was to educate our communities more so that we can reach out and help somebody. Now I have to ask you, was there any sort of mental health help like the Nate Shoot Foundation prior to that, you know, being established? I mean, you know, there were systematic sort of mental health things, right? Organizations. But anything specifically focused on suicide prevention. Nothing. No, there wasn't. And and still to this day, so, you know, that was 1999. So well over 20 years ago now, the Nate Shute Foundation is the only non-for-profit working in the community up here in the Flathead that's solely dedicated to suicide prevention. There are other similar organizations across the nation, which do really similar work to what we do. But it is kind of a, a cool and unique framework where it's outside the health department, it's outside federally funded mental health programs, and it's you know, community-based work, which makes us a little different, I think. So just a little bit, can you kind of, before we get into your role, can you Mm -hmm. give a little bit of a breakdown, what type of services you guys provide? Yeah. So we, like I, I kind of alluded to, we're really focused on that education piece and understanding that education about suicide and about mental health issues is a really, really key component to prevention strategies. So we focus on that area. So we go to middle schools and high schools here in in the Flathead Valley of Montana, where we are located, and talk to seventh and ninth grade kids in their health classrooms during their mental health unit about what to look for and how to help and how to have those difficult conversations maybe with their friends and ultimately how to get connected to a trusted adult who can help them navigate getting somebody to the resources they need. We also do evidence-based training for adults. So that might be for, you know, recently we did one for a group of financial advisors. You know, we did one for the National Parks staff. 
So really with anybody who says, hey, in our organization, we need to adapt this as part of our culture to say we're willing to have these hard conversations and make sure that we have some resources in our tool belt to know what to look for. So that's, I think, the core of our programming is that education of what to look for and how to help people. And we do that from kids 12 years old to however old you are willing to sit in a room for 90 minutes with us. That's amazing. It's it's really cool. And everything we do is using evidence-based programs. So, you know, we do have that freedom, I guess, as a community organization to be a little bit more creative about how we work and where we work. But it's really important to us to make sure that we stay evidence-based and using best practice, especially with something such a a difficult and sensitive topic as suicide. And then the other thing we do is really work as a community connector. So helping connect people to funding and resources. So, you know, somebody can call us up and say, hey, I have a a 16-year-old girl who's really struggling and she's having some self-harming behavior and I need to get connected to a therapist. And we have relationships in our community where we can say, okay, we think that Anne might be a great choice for her or, or I think Joe is a good option, you know, or it's, hey, my 85-year-old mother is struggling with end-of-life stuff. How can we get her connected to somebody? So that sort of community connection and helping provide funding assistance. And then also just working as part of the system and saying, hey, how can we get better as a system, including our health system and our health department and our schools and our community stakeholders to take a more comprehensive approach to this and and really work together to develop a common language and hopefully move the needle a little bit here in our community. That's amazing. So does Institute Foundation, what's the reach on that? What, what, is it all of Northwestern Montana? Are you more further South, East? Yeah. Our programs are really focused here in the Flathead Valley, which is Northwest corner-ish of Montana. But as our capacity allows and as the need presents, we do expand into Northwest Montana. So most of the core of our program happens here in, in Flathead County but we also work in Lake Lincoln, Sanders County. And as part of COVID, the virtual world opened up some things where we've done training for more statewide stuff or had people from Wyoming on the training. And so there's been different opportunities there to to get the training out to people outside of the area, which we mostly work. That's wonderful. And as you guys are listening, Casey's really going to really focus in on kind of the area that we live in and the areas that she mentioned she covers. And when we talk a little bit about statistics, I'm going to be talking about national and worldwide statistics. So keep that in mind as you continue Mm -hmm. to listen to our interview. So Mm -hmm. now, Casey, can you talk a little bit about how you came into your role? Yeah, it's been quite a journey, Julie, honestly. So Nate Chute was a friend of mine in high school. So I was impacted by his suicide way back in 1999 as a 17-year-old entering my senior year of high school. So this organization has been a part of the fabric of my entire adult life. But it was in about, oh gosh, I guess 2012. I was back here working in the community mental health system. And that's really when the organization went from just kind of Nate's family providing funding assistance to, hey, there's more we could do here. We want to be more strategic about what we offer in the community, what our programs are. So I joined the board of directors at that time. So it was about 2012, sat on the board of directors for several years and and helped the organization begin to grow. It was still a volunteer-based organization. And then in 2016, I started working as our contract executive director and then hired on as a staff member in 2017. So I was our very first staff member here at the organization. So it really has been an interesting journey of my personal connection to the organization 
And then, you know, going into that field of community mental health and understanding that with youth. So having some professional capacity to understand what the organization was doing and understand what the community needs here and where there were gaps in services. To now being at the helm and boy, the last five years, we've had a tremendous amount of growth. I think bringing on a staff member was exactly what this organization needed. And now we have four staff members and we're just continuing to grow our, our programs and our impact. And yeah, it's been a really cool journey watching it go from somebody's grief experience to something really beautiful, providing a very needed service in our community. Amazing. You, you must naturally have that need of service. Do you feel that way? <laughs> I, I feel like I've had that as long as I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing. And we're going to talk about that, but it's amazing what the impact of suicide is. And, you know, keep in mind, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that on not only the immediate loved ones, but it filters out into the community. And obviously Nate's death made such an impact on you. And what we're talking 1999 till when you started 2012. I mean, you look at that evolution on wanting to do something, which is pretty remarkable. And I'm assuming, you know, suicide is a lifetime of grief and loss and sadness. So, but it's wonderful that you have decided to be of service and help and come back to the organization and grow it like what you're doing. So that's absolutely awesome. Thank you. It's certainly not easy, you know, especially when you take something that is so personal and make it your work. You know, there's a lot of nuances to navigate there to make sure that, that I'm good, that I stay well in this work. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Thank yeah. you for saying that. I appreciate yeah. it. Well, I'm going to get deeper into the topic because I think it's important that we kind of explore the topic. Explain what you know about some of the key risk factors for suicide. But before we do that, I just want to give for those that listen, that understand when they listen to my podcast, I always usually give some sort of scientific data. All right. And I pull this from various websites. So this particular information that I'm going to be sharing with you guys is from the CDC website from Suicide Facts from 2021. And the topic is called Suicide is a Serious Public Health Crisis. And as we know, you know, it's really been in our news a lot as of the last several years, obviously COVID isolation, a lot of teen suicides. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a quote. Suicide rates increased by 30% between 2000 to 2018 and declined in 2019 and 2020. Suicide is the leading cause of death in the United States with 45,979 deaths in 2020. That is remarkable. And these are completely preventable deaths. This is about one death every 11 minutes. The number of people who think about or attempt suicide is even higher. In 2020, an estimated 12.2 million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million planned a suicide attempt and 1.2 million attempted suicide. Mind-blowing. Suicide affects all ages. In 2020, suicide was among the top nine leading causes of death for people ages of 10 to 64. I have a 10-year-old. That is unbelievably, it's just mind-blowing. Suicide was the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 14 
and 25 to 34. This is probably nothing new for you, Casey. But for me, when I read that, it's just heartbreaking. And I think there absolutely needs to be more Nate Shoot foundations across the United States. Mm -hmm. So what I want to ask you is, you know, what's your thoughts about some of those statistics? And what are you seeing as some of the key risk factors to suicide outcomes? Yeah, thanks, Julie. I mean, I think first it's important to mention just how heavy and how sensitive this topic can be and and to encourage people that might be triggered by this conversation because all that stuff you just threw at us is really scary, right? Um, So anybody who, you know, has experienced loss, has struggled themselves, is just generally triggered by this conversation, I would encourage you to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Line, which is 1-800-273-8255 or text the crisis line, which is 741-741 to get connected to resources. I start every conversation with the importance of taking care of ourselves in these conversations that can be really difficult because everything you just said is statistically true and it's very scary. And I am sorry to tell you that those are probably underreported numbers too. I don't love the like shock statistics of it, but, but like, this is the reality of what the problem we're dealing with is. And the reason why I say they're often underreported is because there are so many attempts that we don't know about, right? So there's more people struggling that we don't know about because they don't visit a hospital or they don't tell a counselor. It's just, it's just not reported in our system. And additionally, being able to classify a death is forensically can be complex too. So there's lots of times where, boy, it sure feels like this might've been a suicide, but we can't call it that because X, Y, and Z aren't present, right? So unfortunately, I think those numbers are a little bit underreported. And I think, you know, in general, suicide is just a really complex issue to address. It's incredibly difficult to predict. It's incredibly difficult to understand. And yeah, it's a public health issue. It's also a community health issue. And when I say that, I mean that probably the best tools we have, and this is why the Nate Shoot Foundation is so focused on education, is making sure that everybody on the street knows how to recognize signs in their friends, families, neighbors, because that's where we're probably going to get effective intervention is by somebody reaching out and being willing to connect at a very human level. Say, hey, I, I see you struggling. I'm here for you. It's sort of funny how complex the issue is and how simply we can boil the solutions down to connection in a lot of ways. Yeah. But in regard to risk factors, there's complexities there too, right? Because there, there is data and there is science that sort of looks at, you know, mostly undiagnosed or untreated mental health issues. And most often depression tends to be the most connected mental illness to suicidality, but lack of connection shows up again too. And so that means social isolation. It means maybe people who are experiencing significant family conflict or trauma. It means people who are bullied. It's just people who don't have other humans to connect with on a really authentic level. I think substance use is a big piece of this. And certainly in in Montana, which is one of the highest states in the nation and across, you know, when you look at what are the highest states in the nation, Alaska, Wyoming, New Mexico, we all sort of have this similar rural culture where alcohol is often used as a coping method. We have easy access to firearms, you know, and these rural sort of isolated cultures where it can be hard to access mental health services. And there's some stigma around asking for help because we're, you know, the rugged in the West and we're individualists and that serves us really well in a lot of ways. And then sometimes it it really becomes a barrier to reaching out and getting help. So I think what we're seeing here in the Flathead, we're in Montana, certainly is firearms play a big part. And I don't mean that, I know that's a sticky conversation, but in Montana, 63% of suicides are by firearm and that's well over double the national average. So 
that is an area of opportunity for us to look at regarding, you know, not taking anybody's firearms because they're a part of the lifestyle and the culture here, but talking about safe storage, talking about the impact of putting space and time between someone and their access to lethal means, because suicide is really an impulsive act in the sense that the time that somebody will act on their suicidal thoughts is really short, you know, maybe 10 minutes. So if we can slow that down, we can hopefully get somebody through that crisis moment. I know the question was about risk factors and I sort of found no, all no, over this that. Is fantastic. Thank you, Casey. This is what yeah. we need to know about. And I was just blown away when you said 63% of suicide outcomes are related to firearms. And we're at the top of that. And obviously because of hunting and access yeah. and people carry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's so imperative that we kind of break some of this down. So keep going. I appreciate your conversation. Yeah. Well, and what I, what I was going to say about risk factors too, is I think they're hard to understand because what we also see and probably what some of the listeners are experiencing is, yeah, but the person in my life who attempted or died by suicide, things were good, right? They had a great job. They have a nice family. They have resources. They're connected. They're engaged. They're involved. And so it doesn't look like what the research tells us it's supposed to look like, which again, makes it really, really difficult. And there is some schools of thought that boiling it down really comes down to psychic, so psychological pain, which humans can experience regardless of their external circumstances, right? We all have psychological pain sometimes that many people aren't aware of and a sense of hopelessness. And where that sense of hopelessness comes can be from all sorts of different things, right? It could be the super high-level executive who is well-paid and volunteers and has everything he wants, and, but it feels hopeless because he's stuck in a job that maybe his values don't connect to, right? I'm just using examples, but it's like these things that the psychic and the hopelessness yeah. are a lot less easy to define than things like access to lethal means and mental health issues and isolation and trauma history, because those things play a part. And it's just not that simple to say it's about trauma. Wow. Yeah, you're that is absolutely true. And you know, what's interesting, and I I just want to read something else that I also researched was it said some groups have higher suicide rates than other suicides vary by race, ethnicity, age, and other factors such as where, even where someone lives. So Mm -hmm. as we're kind of going through and really, honestly, it's kind of like a snapshot because you know, we only have so much time to chat, but by race and ethnicity, the groups with the highest rates were non-Hispanic American Indian Alaska native and non-Hispanic white populations. Other Americans with higher than average rates of suicides are veterans, people who live in rural areas, I'm sorry, rural areas and workers in certain industries and occupations, like you just mentioned, especially mining and construction, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Young people who identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual have rates of suicidal thoughts and behaviors, higher rates compared to their peers who identify as heterosexual. And I did an interview in the past with queer and inspired, her name is Michelle, it's coach Michelle. We gave a really nice in-depth conversation around how suicide is prevalent in the homosexual population. But I was really astounded by, you know, how high the rates were in non-Hispanic Americans, Alaskan natives and non-Hispanic white population, which I thought Mm -hmm. was really mind blowing. And we do have native American, you know, reservations kind of surrounding our area. Can you Mm -hmm. speak a little bit about what you're seeing in regards to that? 
Yeah, um, well, we don't, the Nature Foundation doesn't work directly with any of our, our tribal communities. However, statewide, exactly what you said, those are our highest risk communities. So our Indian populations, our Native communities, middle-aged white men and veterans, right? And we have a lot of all three of those in Montana. I think in regard to the tribal populations, and I don't have this statistic right now, but their rate of suicide is, I want to say, above 30 per 100,000 nationally like maybe it's like 32 do not well i can say don't quote me but here i am quoted so no, i'm just gonna say we're disclaiming that we're good but nas- nationally the rate is around 14 per hundred thousand 14 people per hundred thousand nationally die by suicide in a year in montana our rate right now is right around between 25 and 26 oh sorry i was afraid that might happen. you're totally um, fine Totally and right. then for, for American Indians, I think it's around 32 per 100,000. So it really is significantly higher rates of suicide there. And if you look back to these, these risk factor ideas of, you know, sort of isolation or the sense of belongingness, right? Like there's a long, long history of our tribal populations, quite frankly, not belonging because we have taken their land and put them on reservations. And, you know, there's generational trauma there potentially. Um, And I want to be really careful because I think, you know, the best person to speak on this issue is somebody who is a part of a tribal community. You know, I, so I'm recognizing that I'm speaking on it from outside and with the desire to learn more from them about what they think it is. But I think there's some generational trauma there. I think there's lack of resources there. There's substance abuse issues there. There's, you know, lack of access to mental health issues. And so I think all of those things are are potentially at play for why those communities are higher. And then you look at veterans, well, right, lots of PTSD, so lots of adverse trauma experiences, and middle-aged white men, you know, this idea of how we ask for help. And I think veterans and middle-aged white men both probably struggle because the narrative has been, be strong, suck it up, you can do this, get gritty, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of stuff, especially in, in the rural parts of our country, especially in the rural parts of our country. Absolutely. And we do have a very large veteran population just in Northwestern Montana alone, mm-hmm. Yeah, but they live kind of out in the outskirts because they obviously want their land. They want to be able to shoot, you mm-hmm. know, and so there is a little piece of isolation as well added to that, which I think is really fascinating. I'm going to skip to number 10, but I wanted to ask you because I, I kind of want to segue into this. And one of the flip and shift followers it's at Kalispell Microblade Artist. And I met her personally. She's a phenomenal person. And she kind of gave me a little bit of a insight on what her struggles have been, not only with herself, but her family. Specifically, I'm going to read this, specifically for those who are family members or friends of a person who is struggling. Our follower, like I said, at Kalispell Microblade Artist, recently lost her brother to a mental health crisis and drug overdose. He was isolated due to COVID restrictions and family members struggled with communicating with him. She explained that within their culture, so she's Hawaiian, and mental health and drug addiction is massively a problem, yet resources are limited and oftentimes disregarded. Due to closeness within the community, a lot of family members work at the hospitals, work at some of the clinics. So she feels if education was given to family members on a personal level on how to mitigate a mental health crisis, her brother's suicide may have been preventable. So I just want to ask you, um, could you speak on the challenges within just this particular crisis and how your organization would be addressing something in regards to mental health 
education within a strong cultured community? Mm -hmm. I know it's a very complex question. Yeah, no, it's a really good question though. And again, I'll go back. I think I already say this, but ultimately we do the best we can with what we have, right? And suicide is a really particularly traumatic form of loss where there is almost always a sense of what if or blame or what more could we have done, right? So that's just part of the complexity of dealing with suicide, dealing with this kind of loss. Is it naturally we go back and ask questions and go, but this is preventable, right? You tell us it's preventable. So how could we have prevented this death? And yes, I believe wholeheartedly that suicide can be prevented. But again, without the right information, without the right resources, without the right set of skills, it's very difficult. And again, I said this before, it's very difficult to predict. So it's really, really hard. Somebody in that same situation as this listener's brother may not have attempted suicide or died by suicide, right? So it's really hard to tell who goes from over here really struggling to then actually acting on these thoughts. It's incredibly difficult. All that being said, I think this listener got to the the core of this, which is that education is the key to this. And I think it, you know, it is so big and so scary, Julie. It's such Mm -hmm. a massive topic. And in some ways, I think we collectively, we feel like we have to be experts or that there's this formula for how to do it or how to intervene. And ultimately it, you know, there's some pretty simple steps that you can take. And it comes back to just being willing to step into some uncomfortable spaces with people and ask some really direct questions about mental health and ask really directly about suicide. And that's a scary thing to ask somebody if they're having thoughts of suicide. You know, there's physical responses in our body when we think about asking that question. We worry, are we going to plant the idea, which you're absolutely not going to. Instead, what happens, I think, when we ask somebody directly about suicide is is we communicate to them, like, I'm willing to step into this hard place with you. I see you. I'm willing to bear witness to what's happening with you. And then we have to just listen. You know, we want to fix it. And I'll I'll tell you somebody who's in a mental health crisis or somebody who's suicidal, it's going to be really hard to convince them that that's not a, a solution, right? So we want to go to this, oh, but this is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And why would you think that? And you look at all of the stuff that you have or all you have to live for. And somebody who is so, their thinking is so compromised at that point. If they're thinking that ending their life is the way to stop their pain, we're probably not going to talk them out of that idea. So what we can do instead is help them think about where can we provide some relief? Where can we provide tiny moments of hope? So I, I don't have a great answer to the like cultural question here because I don't know the Hawaiian culture. My guess is though, because as humans and in one way, we're all the same. And that's that we crave a sense of belongingness and connection. So I think while we want this like big technical answer to this question, the answer is really step into that hard space, ask the hard questions, listen, follow up, stay connected. I think she'll Yeah, be, and it feels too simple. Yeah, it feels yes. too simple, but it's what we get. Yes, absolutely. No, thank you for that. I appreciate it so much behind what you said. So I appreciate that. Now, I do want to ask, with the Nate Shoot Foundation, what have you have found to be the most helpful approaches to suicide prevention within the school systems and our flathead community? It's hard to know because it's hard to measure what the impact is. So that effectiveness is sort of this thing that lives out there. But, you know, like I said before, we use an evidence-based approach, which includes educating on risk factors and warning signs 
and teaching people what to do and how to have that hard conversation and what are the resources, right? So that is an evidence-based approach that we use. Personally, I believe that the most effective approach is, a, is sort of a, a new school approach, which is what we call upstream suicide prevention. So using a more strengths-based model, where in addition to, not instead of, but in addition to talking about what does it look like and how do we help, going upstream to sort of building more resiliency in people. So getting them to understand that mental health treatment is an important part of our wellness right? If we need it. And, and, you know, we, mental health is this funny thing, right? Like mental health is our psychological and emotional well-being. Mental health is not mental illness. Those are two different things, but so sort of going upstream and getting people connected with their mental health and their physical health, making sure they have positive support networks, getting people to engage in healthy activities that bring them joy and learn how to process emotions well learn how to have difficult conversations, have positive mentors, connect to a sense of service, all of these sort of strength-based things that we can start teaching people in as early as elementary school. And I know that this is sort of a hot button thing right now, but social emotional learning, social emotional curriculums, that's what it's doing. It's teaching people to build resilience. And that I think is our best bet at really addressing this problem is starting early from a strengths-based approach building, what is that Frederick Douglass quote? It's, it's easier to build strong men, children than repair broken men or something like that. You know what I mean? And I think that's, that's so true to this field is like, we're trying to pull people out of the river when they're already at the waterfall, Yeah. you know? Yes. So we have to, and this is an analogy that's often used in this field of the river and the waterfall, but we have to go upstream and start keeping people from falling in. Essentially. Yeah, absolutely. What have you found though, in working with the community, some of the frustrations, and I, I kind of know based on just what you said, some of the frustrations that you have dealt with. I mean, I think at the core of that question, Julie, that the frustration is not knowing what's effective and it being so difficult and so complex that it's, it's really, really challenging to know when we're making an impact. So that's frustrating. And I think most everybody in the suicide prevention field you would talk to would say, that the lack of system-wide collaboration is frustrating. And that's on a national level, that's at a local level. I will give huge props to my, my colleague here in the Flathead Valley. We're coming together. We're sitting at the table and trying to figure this out together and breaking down some of those silos that exist. But I think across anywhere you go, they're going to say that is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Have you seen, God bless you, have you seen a significant shift in regards to more collaboration efforts, especially with some of the recent events that have happened in the Flathead, the unfortunate events, have you seen a massive shift in, you know, people stepping up and wanting to collaborate? Yeah. So unfortunately, what you're referring to, Julie, is we recently had lost a number of youth in in a short period of time to suicide. The Flathead in Montana in general has always had high numbers, right? So we've always had this issue here, but there's something about young people dying that gets people's attention in a different way. And especially, I think we lost nine young people to suicide. So it was really, you know, very much became at the forefront of everybody's attention. So I think there are some of us who have always been at that table trying to say, what are we doing here? And then there's new people coming to the table, which is fantastic. And I do think there is more of a willingness to say, let's take a strategic approach to this. Let's put our resources together break down any ego or territorialism about this and like move forward because our community needs it. And not just for those young people, 
but for all of the adults that we lose too, because it's a problem and it has been for a long time. So I think if nothing else, unfortunately, the attention to suicide in our community was ramped up quite a bit in the last year. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It really was unfortunate. It was mind blowing, especially when I, in the world that I work in, I deal with a lot of mental health, you know, PTSD, chronic illness factors. And when that happened, I went to Dr. Poland's talk and he's an international expert of crisis intervention, suicide and school climate. And I found his talk really profound. I think I took about 15 pages of notes Mm -hmm. and everything that he spoke about that's happening nationally. And I'm not originally from Montana and I am seeing some of the stuff he's referring to in that meeting back in Illinois. I also know for myself, people do have difficulties talking to people that are struggling. I mean, there is issues with that and, you know, lots of stigmas around attempts and mental health. So it was a really eye-opening talk that I listened to and you know, and I know we're not going to dive in the social media part because I mean, I interviewed Kaylee Rodriguez and we talked about the impact of social media on especially her clientele, her, her patient population, children's mental health. So, you know, he really touched point on that. He touched point on, you know, having that difficult conversation with somebody who is struggling and, and you know, making it to be a safe space, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself and when I dealt with chronic illness on a personal level, that, you know, if I didn't have that person in my life who called me and she was also a social worker, had a psychology background, knew how to talk to me, you know, who knows where I'd be at. But I do think it's such a hot topic and something that heavily needs to be addressed in all communities across the entire United States. States. So I do want to ask you, I know we talked a little bit about the mental health programs that you guys kind of do within the Nate Shoot Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are funded, any fund raising events, things like that, that, you know, where people may want to contribute to your foundation. Yeah, great. Thank you for that opportunity. Because unlike a lot of nonprofits, um, we're sort of unique. And, and some fundraising experts would tell me this is very irresponsible of us, but we don't have any burned income. We don't charge for any of our services. Everything we do in the community is 100% free. It has always been, I don't know if it will always be depending on how we grow, but we don't charge for anything. So we are fully funded by, well, almost fully funded by individual small business, corporate donation. We do a little bit of grant work too, not not really state level grants or federal grants, more private family foundations or, or healthcare foundations, those sort of things. You know, quite frankly, we live in one of the most philanthropic areas in the nation, which is fantastic for us. So we've been able to support our our work almost fully funded by individual donations, which is super cool. So we engage in sort of two fundraisers per year here in Whitefish. We are are blessed to have the Whitefish Community Foundation, which every year hosts the Great Fish Community Challenge, which is a six-week fundraising campaign. They accept about 50 or so nonprofits into that. And it's really a concentrated giving campaign to help all the nonprofits in our community do their work. So that's happening this year from, I think, August 4th to September 16th. So that's a really fantastic opportunity for people not only to support Suicide Prevention and HU Foundation, but a lot of other really fantastic work happening up here in Northwest Montana. And then also, I guess, kind of an homage to who Nate Shute was. He was a snowboarder. And so as, as kids, we decided to have a memorial snowboard contest for him. And, and Whitefish Mountain Resort has now been hosting that for just, we just had the 23rd annual of that. And that brought us in about $30,000 this year. We have an annual operating budget right around $300,000. And so 
you know, we are very grateful to our donors and to all the community support, because like I said, we believe that that access to education and to as much treatment as we can help provide should be free and should be without a financial barrier. So I want to I want to make sure our listeners know where they can learn more about how to donate, because obviously you could you accept private donations, grants as well. So where can they locate that information as well as upcoming events? Yeah, so on our website is probably the best place to do that, nateshootfoundation.org. So it's N-A-T-E-C-H-U-T-E foundation.org. And then, of course, on our social channels, um, Facebook and Instagram with the Nate Shoot Foundation handle as well are great ways to keep up with us and keep in touch with resources and um, research and kind of what's happening in the field and, and what we're looking to do to address it. Thank you so much for that. Now, I do have three last questions for you. It's my standard question that I ask to my interviewees. What inspires you with the work that you do? This is a hard one, honestly. I think I kind of alluded to this in the beginning. But for me, it's the belief that really tiny actions can have really big impact. So if it's one person that we talk to that gets connected to help or find some hope, that feels like enough for me. I love that. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then my second question is, where do you hope to see yourself in the next five to 10 years? And then offset, what is your vision for the Nate Shoot Foundation? Well, for myself, I hope I'm surviving raising two adolescent girls. (laughs) That's what I'm preparing myself for right now. The hormones alone, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can can feel we're getting into it. So I'm trying to prepare myself for that early. But as far as the work goes, as far as the Nate Shoot Foundation goes, I would really love to see us continue to move into that upstream prevention model that I was talking about and really making sure that we are helping to to build a more resilient community, to break down those stigmas, to increase education, but but really to provide opportunities for people to connect to their joy, their passion, their purpose, their people, because I think that's where a lot of the good prevention really happens is, is being connected to the things that bring us joy. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Last one. And this is kind of the hope rope that I asked for those that are tuning in. And we so appreciate our listeners that are struggling with mental health and needing some support today. What message would you give them? I mean, that's such a big one too, but I think to remember that there is a ton of power and a ton of courage in asking for help and being really vulnerable about that. And I want to put all sorts of disclaimers on that about system issues and what it's like to be severely mentally ill and all that stuff. But I think that's my hope. That's where I think we can find hope is knowing that like we can step into this hard space and know that there's somebody out there who cares. That's so wonderful. I love that. That is wonderful. Again, you guys, I just want to give a special thanks to Casey today. I'm so honored and grateful for all of the information we talked about in this interview. And you guys can learn more about the Nate Shoot Foundation at www.nateshootc, as in cat, H-U-T-E foundation.org. Thank you so much, Casey. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys all for listening in today. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Wow. What a great episode and a special thank you to our expert today. I hope today's episode inspired you, empowered you, and gave you some hope today. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Cheers, my friend. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, review, or even share this podcast to someone who needs hope and inspiration. You can connect with me at 
www.flipinshift.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even Clubhouse at Flip in Shift. Please join me next time for another expert chat or survivor talk. 